I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's return there again. Thanks for allowing me to be away last weekend. I heard that Nathan brought Leviticus. And, you know, when you come back and someone has preached, that's great. But when they get affirmed for preaching out of Leviticus, then you know the Spirit of God was in this place, right? So I heard it was great. I heard it tied, hopefully, some more of what Hebrews is trying to say from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I... uh, am privileged to open Hebrews 1, which magnifies the Lord Jesus. And I think in a world that seems like it's going topsy-turvy and, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen where you wake up and look at the news and like what happened in Pittsburgh with the synagogue shooting and, you know, just out of nowhere, there, there it is. And yet it almost becomes regular for us to say, oh, well, this has happened again. There's another tragedy um, uh, the different ones that were killed, I think the death toll was 11. I think six were wounded, four of them police officers um, defending, defending us, right? And we need to pray for the families of that loss, and yet we need to point people to Jesus Christ, who is strong enough, transcendent enough, glorious enough, powerful enough, to steady us and anyone else that will place their trust in him while the world seems to quake and shake around us. He is the gold standard. He is the stake in the ground. He is the rock uh, for which we cannot be shaken because of Christ. But I would contend that people will dumb down Christ at a level to try to make him attractive to try to make him compelling on a sort of a feel-good social level. And by doing that, they're losing something that is very necessary to persevere in the Christian life. If Christ isn't sovereign, if he isn't glorious, if he isn't the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greatest king, then who are we really talking about? Who are we really worshiping? I went uh, down last weekend to Southern California and had the privilege of, I was invited with uh, 20 other pastors, 20 some other pastors of churches around the country to meet uh, with John MacArthur and sit with him. And we have the extension school here, and I'm not sure if that was the link, but suddenly Alaska was represented. And uh, I was down at the Master's University in a room with uh, John and these other pastors talking about the state of the church. For about a day and a half, we talked openly and transparently about what's happening and how denominations seem to be a thing of the past in terms of banding around truths and what we believe and holding things dear. And the the trendy church today, the culture of cool, is saying, you know, we're we're here and we're a one-off. You know, we're this name or we're that, we're the journey, we're the river, we're the, you know, something cool. But are we sacrificing cool for substance was one of the big questions. And uh, people are losing their way in this. Uh, Evangelicalism is weakening and people are forgetting who Christ really is. The Bible defined Christ. And 
A lot of things, a lot of trends that are inspiring people today. We talked a lot about social justice and how people are talking about doing things and perhaps trending towards a a do-good, feel-good Christianity rather than recapturing the solid verities of the faith, faith that surround Jesus. And if you lose Jesus, the real Jesus, and if you lose the Bible, then you don't have Christianity at all. And the consequences for a wrong Jesus and a wrong Bible, a Bible that is watered down, that's not really inerrant, that has myths in it, you know, and, and stories and, and examples for us, but it's not really thus saith the Lord. If you lose that, you don't have Christianity, you don't have a saving gospel anymore. We talked about a survey that Ligonier put out. You remember R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul? Well, his ministry lives on and surveys the church every two years. Here are some of the findings of where the church is today. With a statement like this, listen, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Well, 52% of uh, evangelicals agree with this. Um, Second, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% agree with this. 42% disagree, and then there's some margin in the middle. That was up 2% from 2016. Another one, God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a good one. Um, 91% agree with that, so that's good. There's one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 95% agree with that. But then strangely, people are confused with the person of Christ. Listen to this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Did you hear that? This is the, the test question. So do you believe that Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God? Well, 78% of evangelicalism believes that. They agree with that statement, according to the survey. 18% disagree, and a lot of people are in the middle. They're foggy. Was Jesus created, or actually, is he eternal? Listen to this one. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Only 23% agree with that statement. Worshiping alone in one's family or um, is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. I just wanted to throw that one out there, you know. We worship God in nature, right? That's a big one in our culture. It's a big one. I, I hear that, not weekly, but almost weekly, just when I'm witnessing or talking to people, well, I worship God in nature, and church really doesn't matter. Well, 58% agree with that. It was a non-Alaskan survey, um, obviously. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. 60% agree with that. The Bible's condemnation of homosexuality doesn't apply today. 44% agree with that. Abortion is a sin. Only 52% agree with that. Only those who who truly believe in Jesus alone will receive the free gift of salvation. 62% of millennials agree with that. That's good. But listen to this one. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 53% of millennials agree with that. God is unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. 36% of millennials agree. Things will trend um, towards the watered-down Jesus, the watered-down gospel, the watered-down Bible if people don't look at the Bible itself. 
What we're doing over the next few minutes is looking at a Bible-defined Jesus rather than a culturally-defined Jesus. And I just want to point out, if we don't get this right, who will get this right? I mean, the importance and significance of who you are in the 21st century with your Bible should not be underestimated. We are the couriers of truth. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. We're the, we're the New Testament lighthouse, right? Like, the, like Israel was in the Old Testament. The church is the beacon of light and hope to the world. So we've got to get this right so that people can believe and be saved. Otherwise, they will go into an eternal hell. So let's define Christ Right. Well, the context here in Hebrews 1 is Jesus is better than angels. And we've talked about how powerful angels are and how esteemed they were in the culture and day of this writing. And so it was important for the author to go right to Old Testament references and make the case that Jesus is far superior to any created being, even this superlative being that's an angel. Well, verse 5. Again, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we talked about how the son is greater. Jesus, not angels, was begotten. Begotten is not a birth term here in the sense that it's used and quoted from the Old Testament. This is an enthronement ordinance. This is God the Father's affirmation on the son that Jesus is the begotten king. He is the enthroned one, Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel seven fourteen or quoted here in under this first point in verse 5 he shall be a son to me second samuel 7 says meaning that even though david came and was the original king of israel after saul but the the man after god's own heart he was to predict christ coming and so you have david you have solomon you have all the kings and then you have the penultimate king which is christ and his ultimate affirmation came at his resurrection acts 13 33 by the raising of jesus that's when paul quotes you are my son today i have begotten you god is saying you are affirmed well second the son is greater jesus not angels is worshiped now verse six Um, skipping kind of through verse 5 to verse 6 it says and again he brings the firstborn into the world this is speaking prophetically to Christ's second coming he came he was born he was was affirmed at baptism he was affirmed at his resurrection and verse 6 is saying again when the firstborn comes into the world he will be worshipped it says let all God's angels worship him this is a quotation taken from Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 97. These are dominant places in scripture. This is a Deuteronomy 32 is where Moses is writing this song right before the children of Israel are going into the promised land. The reason for this reference is to say Israel has just conquered all of its enemies. Israel Israel was on a warrior's army march into the promised land. They've slain, God has slain Israel's enemies, and now they're going into the promised land. In the same way at the second coming, Jesus in Revelation 19 with a two-edged sword will slay all of God's enemies, and heaven will begin for everyone, for the full bride of Christ. Not just those who are here and those who are there, but all together the world will 
be the new heavens and the new earth. This is speaking of Jesus coming back as the conquering king. um, Psalm 97 echoes this as well. He's the firstborn, um, verse 6, not again speaking of his birth, but his right and his headship and his lordship. Verse 7, the son is greater Jesus, not angels, has God's nature. Verse 7 speaks of how awesome angels are. He makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. That speaks of how in the angelic realm they are powerful. They're not to be underestimated. They're not to be understated. Satan is the um, sort of pinnacle angel that thought himself to be as powerful as God in his created state. And he did so because angels are Strong, powerful beings, but in that pride, he was struck down. Angels, uh, as we talked about, are created beings, but they are um, God's messengers. They, they're going to bring fire and judgment with Christ as winds and flame of, flames of fire, but they do not outrank the sun. Nothing outranks the sun. Angels don't outrank the sun, and nothing under the angelic realm outranks the sun. Nothing created outranks the sun. Nothing is as powerful as the Son of God. Jesus, not angels, is self-existent. That's our next point. The sun is greater than... Jesus, not angels, is self-existent. And verse 7 works right into verse 8. This is where God the Father is speaking directly of the Son. It says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Stop there. The, The language here is very powerful because it's literally pointing the reader to say, God the Father is looking towards the Son, of the Son, literally towards the Son. The Father is speaking a message about his Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right, who in this room has ever debated someone over the deity of Christ? Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. Have you ever said, you know, Jesus is God to someone else, and they say, well, he may be. Well, Whatever someone else thinks about Jesus being God and whatever you think about Jesus being God, God the Father believes that Jesus, God the Son, is God because God the Father said so. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's what he's saying. God the Son is the eternal one. He is self-existent. Angels, they might be God's messengers, they might be winds, they might be flames of fire in their power, in their ability to destroy, in their ability to message for God. But of the Son, by contrast to angels, the Son is eternal God forever and ever. That means Jesus has been the self-existent one before time began. He is existing now and he will always exist and here he's viewed as the eternal king this is the eternal king comes directly from god and it it gives a ring of an especial power like isaiah 9 6 for unto us a child is born that's god's voice over the son when he was born 
or in, in Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. We're talking about Jesus affirmed by God the Father. The quote here is uh, from Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is a king-groom application from the David, Davidic dynasty like we've talked about. It applies to Christ in terms of progressive revelation. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart. David was the prefiguring of Christ, but Christ existed before David. As David was reigning king, and as Solomon took over and was reigning king, and then as you had kings that split the kingdom to the northern and the southern kingdom, Christ was always existing, and he was always the rightful heir, and he was always going to be king. God's throne is forever, Christ's throne forever and ever. That's Jesus. That's what this is saying. In Matthew 12, 42, Jesus, speaking of himself, he said, the queen of the south, remember the queen of Sheba story in 1 Kings chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba met Solomon, hearing of Solomon's wealth and wisdom and reputation. And she, once she saw all that Solomon owned and all all of the glory of his wealth, she said, you have far exceeded the report I heard. Well, Jesus built on that moment, that sentiment, and said this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees here. He said, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The greater than Solomon figure is Christ. Jesus was never confused, by the way, of him being deity, of him being God, of him being the greater king. Do you know that? Jesus isn't confused. Neither should we be. We should not be confused for whom we worship, for whom we love. Jesus is the king of kings. The world might shake and quake. The threats against Christianity are coming, have come, will come greater. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal. He wasn't confused about who he was. We should not be confused about who he is either. The Pharisees demanded Christ's death because of his own clarity about himself, John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen to this making himself equal with God. Jesus always knew that he was the eternal king. So the point of this declaration in Hebrews 1 is that he's king. Look at verses 1 and 2. He is the greater prophet. You have the prophets who long ago spoke of God, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's the greater prophet. In verse 3, he's the greater priest. Um, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification. He's the greater priest. And then finally, he's the greater king. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. And verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
Jesus is king. He's trustworthy. There's not going to be a king, by the way, that comes along that's better than Jesus. You ever thought about that? There's not a greater ruler than Jesus. There's not a greater leader than Jesus. There's not a greater Lord than Jesus. There's no one that's going to be more qualified to be king than Jesus. No matter if there are pipe bomb threats or things like that in the news that sort of go, what, what is next? What's happening next? Jesus is king. Jesus is sovereign. He's over all of that. He's eternal. And he's perfect. Look here at verse 9 again, or verse 8, your throne, and then verse 8, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter or the rod of his rule is straight, literally. Jesus never diverts from God's will. He is the perfect king. Whenever you look at a ruler, you always look at them in the context of their pass and fail account, right? What they did well, what they failed in. Jesus never fails. He never does wrong. He never makes an unwise decision. Christ's rule is always right and always righteous and is always a straight path. There is no deviation from what is best or God's will. Now, it could be easy for you to say something like this. Well, if Jesus is perfect and he's the fulfillment of the Davidic line and the Davidic dynasty and he's the king, then he's just up there and we're down here and and there's some great distance between myself and him. I mean, I'm not perfect, right? We're, We're just here on earth and we're living our life and we're doing the best we can, right? And Jesus is up there and he's perfect and We're sinners, so does Jesus really connect with us as this perfect king? Well, verse 9 begins to fill this out. Look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You know, where the verses... 1 through 8 really magnify the deity of Christ and the perfection of Christ and Christ being the perfect fulfillment of the Davidic line. Verse 9 begins to open up the idea of the humanity of Christ. He was perfect as the perfect God-man on earth. And not only does he rule transcendently with great perfection, but on earth... He did everything right also. Did you ever think about that? And that makes him very sympathetic to us. He's sympathetic to our weaknesses because he lived here on earth. And because he did everything right by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though he was tempted externally, he fulfilled all righteousness. He felt human weaknesses through that. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Remember Satan's testing and satan's temptations you know turn these stones to bread he could have said man i want what i'm hungry for so badly that i'm willing to deviate from god's plan and follow the devil right now he didn't do it he didn't do it he loved what was righteous he denied his appetites he denied his physical appetites for righteousness sake he denied owning all the kingdoms of the world. He denied testing the Lord. Hey, just drop off the pinnacle of this temple. Just do that. Angels will pick you up. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. I'm going to trust 
God's righteous rule. I'm going to deny my appetites, my physical appetites. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to follow God's will. I'm not going to twist scripture and and put the Lord God to the test. No, I'm not going to bow down in your satanic program that looks like God's programs because right at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the pinnacle ruler and leader, but I'm not going to follow that satanic path. I'm going to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Do you see that? He loved God's will and detested wickedness. And he did that as a sympathetic high priest, as someone who could empathize with us in this world. This is what builds towards God the Father anointing Christ or affirming Christ as the ultimate king. Do you realize that if Christ would have deviated one degree off from God's plan, he would have been disqualified to be your king. He'd be disqualified for you to trust him. Do you see that? When the world is shaking and quaking, when you feel like your life is falling apart, Jesus will not fail you because Jesus did not fail you when he was on earth. Do you see that? Jesus lived God's will perfectly for you, for you. And sympathetically, we don't believe in a deistic God who is up there, who got everything going and then has nothing to do with you. He is reigning supreme and superior with the highest honor, but he took a path taking on human flesh to vindicate this highest honor. And this traceable theme is all through Hebrews. We're going to see it in Hebrews 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, 10, and 12. But just to sort of move into one passage, look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews 5, verse 8. This is how authentic Jesus' life here on earth really was. It says, although he was a son He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Do you see that? That is shocking language when you just think, well, Jesus is perfect. He was perfect when he came. He was never going to sin because he's perfect, right? Well, he's perfect because he vindicated himself as perfect. He could have fallen in his humanity, but chose not to fall in his humanity. He was impeccable. And in his deity, we know he would not fall in his perfection. But the tests were authentic. And his obedience was on a learning curve from being at age 12, where he went and sat at the temple. It was vindicating that he was learning, but he was also teaching and he was growing in wisdom and knowledge and favor of God and favor with man. This is the humanity of Christ where he was genuinely perfect. Do you realize that him being tested where 
Hebrews 4.15 says we have a high priest who in every respect was tempted as we were without sin. You say, well, those temptations are different than our temptations, right? Because James 1 talks about sin that begins with inside of us and we have appetites and we have temptations that we just feel like we're going to fail all over the place all the time. And so how can Christ relate to us as our high priest, as somebody who can sympathize with that kind of battle? Well, let's flip it on its head for a second. Think about Jesus being tempted. Jesus is tempted to a point where you and I would normally tap out. We would tap out in the first, you know, 1% of the temptation that Jesus went all the way through to the end in. It's like where, you know, you're, you're lifting weights and we can lift about, you know, me nowadays, I probably can bench press a good 75 pounds, you know, and put that up. And hold that for a second, right? Well, just put on 500 pounds and, and put on 1,000 pounds on each side. This is Jesus who, who's going, you know what? I, I, by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to max out all the way and, and feel the full por- force and weight of temptation and all the fury of hell against me. And I'm going to be victorious through that on your behalf. So at whatever level, that kind of powerful testimony makes Jesus empathetic. He is that for us. He feels and has felt the full weight of temptations externally for us on our behalf. That's a sympathetic high priest who is vindicated. He, Hebrews seven twenty six. he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. But he had to work through all of that temptation for three years to vindicate himself as the obedient son with perfect integrity and that perfect integrity led God the father to anoint the son with the oil of gladness again this is quoting the you know the passages from Isaiah 61 old testament passages Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 61:1 and 1 61:3 really is the quotation for the oil of gladness where it's a throwback to Samuel pouring out from the, the horn, the oil from the horn over David's head where David was fully anointed and set apart. This oil picture set apart David as the king. And in a spiritual sense, God the Father did this to his son, saying that he's beyond and above all of his companions. Look at that word in verse 9. You're beyond, you're unparalleled beyond your companions. Companions here could mean angels, but they could also mean any king, any prophet, or any priest that was ever set apart is sublimated under this exalted son who is set apart on our behalf. So, this is Jesus. Let me say this. Is this the Jesus that you hear about from the church in general? I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to say, let's take a gut check and think about the way Jesus is portrayed usually in Christian circles. Whatever you typically hear about Jesus or the way Hollywood portrays Jesus or the way you know a Christian bookstore would portray Jesus or in mainstream evangelicalism, whatever is out there, our responsibility is to have the genuine article. It's the, it's the banker who has, you know, the, 
the stick time with, with the, genuine, the genuine currency so that when a fake comes up, you know, when a false bill comes up or a fraudulent bill comes up, you go, oh, this isn't right, you know. We have to get it right. We have to preach and think about and define and speak about and read about the true Jesus Christ so that we can win people to him. This is the exalted Christ. Well, how powerful is he? Well, look at verse 10. It goes on to again fill out how Jesus is the self-existent one, the eternal one. And he's self-existent because he's the creator. He's the uncreated, so he is the creator. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands You, Lord, this again is God the Father speaking of the Son, saying, you laid the foundation. You created everything. Again, Jesus, who just three decades earlier was walking around on the earth, and these readers in the book of Hebrews, these hearers, maybe they didn't physically see Jesus, but they know about Jesus. They knew Jesus was around. They knew people that knew Jesus. Some of these people maybe were around, but it was 30 years ago when they're reading this that Jesus went to the right hand of the Father. But now the author again is applying scripture to say he's not only human, he's also God. He's not only God and man, he's the creator of all things. He laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. He did all of this. He's the creator. And the foundation was laid by him. Christ created everything that's physically observable, macroscopic, and everything that's microscopic. Everything that is in the heavenly realms that we can see in the stars and the terra firma around us. And then everything that's in the other dimension. He is the creator of all things. This is the exalted Christ. When you put together Jesus' humanity and deity in this light, it's mind-boggling. Everything was laid out by the works of his hands. And we're not talking about, in verse 10, physical hands, because Jesus had not taken on flesh yet. We're talking about the idea that when Jesus created everything, he did it with precision and absolute care. Do you think about that? I mentioned it earlier. I think we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are his works, and we know it well. Jesus created you just like he wanted to create you. He made you just like you are. He puts you here. He sustains you as you sit here. He's part of your health. He's part of your breathing. He's part of you being alive. Now, we live in a sin-cursed world, but Jesus is the creator. He is the sustainer. Everything that we see that's beautiful is from God, the creator. Do you know that? He is the creator. He was the creator from the beginning, and he is the creator now. He is our God. And the intimacy of the work of his hands is displayed here in verse 10. Perfect care and power is found in what he did. But look at the contrast here in verse 11. This again points out how Jesus is self-existent. They will perish, meaning everything that's created will perish, but you remain. They 
will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. Stop there. So no matter how beautiful, how seemingly self-sustaining everything is in creation, how forever everything seems to be, everything in this world eventually will rust out, right? If you've ever worked in machine work or you've ever worked in construction, you know that something can look very beautiful on the outside. And then when you get on the inside, if there's been water, if there's been whatever, there's been you know, rust out, you, you find things are corroding from the inside. Things look beautiful on the outside, but things are breaking down. The second law of thermodynamics applies. All things are in a state of digression and atrophy. I have no clearer example of that, but to think of my children's clothes, right? Children's clothes, it all looks beautiful at first. My youngest son, Owen, he just pulled out a, a new pair of very dark colored jeans. And he said, man, these jeans are brand new. I'm like, I know, I know they are. And I know soon there'll be holes in those jeans. And that's because things wear out. Coats wear out. There are holes in the elbows. There are things just, they, they start fine and they just digress. But that's the picture here. The picture is that no matter how strong and beautiful the heavens are, even the heavens that Jesus prepared, that Jesus made, they're going to perish. They're going to wear out like a garment. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. It's a picture of Jesus being, again, not distant from the creation. He's not out here going, well, I made everything and now I don't care about it. Jesus is going to take this world and he's going to roll it up. A picture of, you know, rolling up of like a garment, like my coat. He's just going to roll it up. That's what Jesus is going to do. I think of rolling up a tent, you know, just he's going to roll it up. It's over. No matter how dominant this world is, no matter how incredibly populated this world is with incredible minds and thinkers, eventually, because of sin, Jesus is going to roll everything up. I was thinking about the first time he did that. Um, You know, Adam sinned and he was to till the cursed ground for how many years? Does everybody know? 930 years. Talk about a retirement job, right? I mean, 930 years. We get tired at, you know, 40 or 50 or 60, but 930, that's how long he tilled the ground. And while he was doing that, he was watching his children. And you remember, you know, Cain killed Abel, so that's sin in the world. And he's watching the injection of sin atrophy God's creation of of human beings that that are made in the image of God but are sinning that are children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren he's watching them fall into sin and digress Genesis 6 is the sad commentary that every thought and every deed and every action was a multiplied sinful action and sin became more and more sophisticated. Well, guess what? With our internet age and our media age, not only does the gospel go out in a profound way, perhaps as strong as it ever has worldwide, right? In terms of world exposure to the gospel. Well, 
with that comes the sin exposure that is on an exponential rate that's just wooing people on the wide road to lead them into destruction where they're influenced by the world, the world, the world wide web, right? And just like in Genesis 6, ultimately God said, I've had enough. I'm going to drown all of those children. He's going to do it again, this time with fire. It was before with a flood. What a sad story. Adam was, was saved. I believe he went to heaven. Adam and Eve did. But many, many people were destroyed, save Noah and his family, right? God drowned them because of sin. God rolled them up. And Jesus is poised in position. According to 2 Peter there are mockers, there are people saying, oh, where is the Lord's coming? When will he return? They say he's this great ruler. You, you, you say that this, this Jesus is enthroned and glorious and powerful. When is he really coming back? And then suddenly the world will be consumed with fire. And I believe that's the picture of Revelation 19 and the angels coming with fire and be like a nuclear bomb went off. When you think of what happened again in Pittsburgh, the anti-Semitic massacre, that demands God's judgment. Jesus eventually will say, I've had enough. I'm changing this world out for a new heavens and a new earth for my bride. So what's the point? What's the point? Let's look back up here at verse 11, they'll wear out like a garment. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But verse 12, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Again, this is Psalm 102, verse 27. It's applied to Jesus. God explains that in light of this level of violent transition where everything's going to be changed, Jesus is the same. He is the self-existent one. He is the one before time. He is the king that is eternal. He is the one who created all things. And as beautiful as those things are, we live in a fallen world and he's going to roll it up and create a new heavens and a new earth. And then in light of all of that, the point is this. But you Jesus are the same and your years will have no end. Jesus doesn't change. While on earth, Jesus faced tremendous persecution and guess what? He was imperturbable, right? He was unflappable. People tried to get him to sin. Satan tried to get him to sin. Pharisees tried to trap him and get him to sin. He was unchangeable. And James 1.17 says, with God, there's no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus is this. Jesus is immutable. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. What does this mean for you? It means this. This is the expectation God has for your life. This is what God expects for you. And this is convicting because as the world shakes and quake, I guarantee you behind the scenes, there are times where you have your moments, right? Right? The expectation is as Jesus is solid, we can be solid. The expectation is as Jesus is imperturbable by the Holy Spirit's power in your life, you can be imperturbable. 
Say, I can't even say that word. What does that mean? It means you're unflapped, you're unmoved. Your ability to fulfill God's will by the power of the Spirit is based upon how solid Jesus is. If Jesus is just your buddy, if Jesus is just your religion, if Jesus is just the place that you were raised in, in terms of a Christian religion, that's not going to keep you sane. That's not going to make you feel safe. That's not going to make you feel solid. But if Jesus is the sympathetic high priest who created you, who loves you, who is eternal and outside of it all, but entering into it to be solid for you and with you, then you'll be solid. Can you trust Jesus on that level? Because he is better, he's eternal, he's the best. We have every confidence that we have every resource at our disposal to face anything that life throws our way because we know and have this Christ. Amen?